You're listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we work to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear the good news about the person and work of Jesus and as we scatter to share it. We hope that you enjoy. Today, we finish James's letter to these confused and scattered new Christians who have some lessons to learn about loving others, humbling themselves, and generally learning what the daily life of a Christian should look like. James drew clear pictures for us of the daily testing and trials, the constant temptation to quietly turn from what God has called us to, and instead choose to do whatever benefits us, uh, the, the trouble that our tongues get us into, and the trouble and mess that our prejudices and preferences uh, get us and the whole church into. How daily we brush aside the wisdom from God in his word and we lean towards worldliness, because we're certain that though Jesus saved us, he's not going to provide for us in the future. And we ended last week in James chapter 5, verse 8, where he tells us to make sure Jesus is the foundation that our hearts are built on. He says that we must strengthen our hearts because Jesus will return. And he encourages us to patiently wait for that day that we will be with Christ. Anchored, don't lose sight of it because it's coming either tomorrow or next year, or on the day that you die. Know that you will be with Christ, and that it is wise to make the identity that he has given you the center of your life, and even your daily life. And that shouldn't sound strange to us, right? I mean, our lives are not simply the end product or the last day. Our lives are daily, each day, Uh, built on the one that came before it. Now that can sound a little bit scary because we all know what our pasts have looked like. But no matter how you have sinned, no matter how you have been sinned against, whether you have neglected the gifts and life given to you by God or you have served yourself only, Jesus saves. He saves you by taking Uh, the judgment for your sin. He saves you from your sin and your selfishness. He either rescues you out of your circumstances or he redeems your circumstances around you and shows you his goodness and greatness through them. And every day, Jesus is doing this for you. Every day, he is saving you. Every day, he is rescuing and redeeming you. So, in in the everydayness of the Christian life, uh, when we are to be preparing for Jesus, while we are wandering through the wilderness of this world, James tells us to not complain against one another. (laughs) A translation that I like better is grumble. Don't grumble against one another. It draws my mind back to the wilderness wandering of God's first people being led by Moses. And what were they always doing? 
They were always grumbling against each other and God and saying things like this. Well, God, you brought us here. This is your mess. You clean it up. James adds in, do not judge one another or else you will be judged. Well, what do you mean, James? The judge stands at the door. And this judge, as we learn from Peter's first letter, is Jesus himself. In other words, watch yourself because the Lord is coming near. Just like what James said last week. Our author here gives us an idea of what patience looks like in the midst of suffering. This is something that has gotten lost in this letter. Uh, all of these sin issues that James is addressing are taking place in the midst of suffering. Maybe all the sins being spoken of here are just survival techniques. Maybe everyone was just trying to get by and yet, while doing so, forgot about everyone else around them. Does that sound familiar right now? Everyone is so concerned for their own livelihood and for their own health that there's an overall thought, a mentality of, well... Neighbor be damned, I'm going to do what I have to do. And look, it's understandable. Some days I'm feeling that same way. But James is calling us out of ourselves once again. Think about those that have come before you. Now, <laughs> remember Christians, when you understand that Jesus is your Savior, Savior, and you are resting in and relying upon him for your salvation, you get a whole new family. Yes, you have to be related to me now. No, no. Yes, your brothers and sisters in church, but you also have a past family. You get whole new ancestors. In this case now, James is talking about our ancestors, the prophets. He encourages us to remember their suffering and their patience, which is great because we actually have written accounts from those men and their scribes, that is, the people that followed, followed them around and wrote down what they said. For those that endure suffering with patience, we look at them as blessed and as heroes of the faith. And James says, look, you've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, you may be tempted to jump to the end of Job and hear all about the earthly and material blessings Job received, but I want to draw your attention to much, much earlier than that. Um, in fact, there is a verse that I think perfectly sums up the ways in which God blessed Job. And it's much earlier in the book. Um, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job says in chapter 1, verse 21. And what continues to happen throughout the book of Job is that this simple statement of faith from Job is, is examined and pressed in upon and stretched and torn and everything. And then later on, Job says that he knows God can do all things. And he no longer needs to know why. He trusts. Why? Because the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Job is such a beautiful picture of this patience in the midst of suffering, this endurance in the midst of suffering. We should trust God, and we should say to him, we know that you are compassionate and merciful. Verse 12, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. To me, this seems a bit strange to throw in there at this point and what James is saying, but, but let's see if we can clarify with the third commandment. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. We said in our Ten Words series on the Ten Commandments that as Christians we carry the name of God with us, and even our lives can make wrongful use of God's name. It's not just about saying this word or that word. Uh, right now I'm reading a book where the main character cannot decide whether he wants to worship the Christian God or the gods of his ancestors. So, he leaves his life in the hands of fate. You know, whatever happens, happens. In a certain way, we might call this the providence of God. And, and this man is always saying that there are only two things that control his life. The providence of God and the oaths that he takes. That is, who he gives his word to. Who he promises his life to. Or his sword to. He's a warrior. He fears breaking an oath because he does not want to lose honor and bring shame to his name. Here, James is reminding us that we as Christians carry the name of Jesus. And when we do not stay true to our word, and more importantly, God's word, we are dishonoring God in the church and in our vocations and in our relationship with our neighbors. James does not quibble with uh, what kind of oath is good and which is bad? It, look, we've got freedom there. But whatever you commit to and, and promise to do, whoever you commit to and promise to care for, stay true to your word. And stay true to what God's word has called you to because you are carrying with you the name of Jesus. Carry it honorably, James is telling us. In verses 13 and 14, uh, we see the daily life of a church, if you will. Prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Look, are you suffering? Ask God for help. Never be afraid to ask for help. You can pray that the circumstances be taken away. You can say, God, save me out of it. Or, God, redeem me in this circumstance. Or, redeem the circumstance. Help me see your goodness and your greatness in it. Continuing, is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. These two, these two things being put back to back remind us that at every given moment in the life of the church, there will be someone uh, who is suffering, and there are going to be some, there's going to be someone who isn't. Churches need both, and each of these people need each other. The first of these people needs to cry out for help. 
Um, and, and the second one of these people needs to be able to testify to let people know that their cry for help worked, <laughs> that Jesus was actually listening, that no one here has been left on their own. Instead, God was there and God's people were there. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Is anyone sick? Like Everyone is almost sick right now. We're hearing that all the time. What kind of sickness is this verse talking about? Most likely, it's talking about a sickness that never goes away. We're not talking about the tummy bug here. Although, it's not bad to pray during that circumstance, and I found myself <laughs> on my knees um, for other reasons, but then winding up in prayer because I'm so desperate to get out of this situation, right? Well, this is a sickness that most likely is not going away. It's going to be a sickness that makes you wish that you were dead, or a sickness that is leading to your death. And what does James say? Call on your pastor for, for prayer, for help, and encouragement. What about the oil here? Does prayer and anointing with oil always have to go together? No. Why does James say it then? Well, oil throughout the Bible is pointing to blessing from God or a setting apart of a person by God. And for the Christian in desperate need of, of help and hope and prayer, there may need, they may need to be reminded that they have been blessed by Jesus at the cross and they are still set apart as a bright light in this dark world for the mission that Jesus has set us all on, even in the midst of their sickness. So does the oil heal? Well, look, I know a lot of church traditions that use oil liberally and, and, and they're expecting that the prayer combined with the oil is going to have a healing force okay um i've even seen it at the christian bookstore where you can buy little vials of anointing oil just as add-ins to your bag as you're walking out um i think that this is missing the point of the oil um oil here is not something that god the holy spirit has promised to work through like he does promise to work through uh, the word uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It doesn't have an extra power in and of itself, even if it smells nice. What James is saying here is this oil is placed on you like the name of Jesus has been placed on you. And you will even have a little oily mark there to remember that. You will have that little oily mark on you to be reminded that you have been blessed. After this, though, we do read that the prayer of faith will save the sick person and that the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins. He will be forgiven. What is the prayer of faith? This seems important because it saves the sick person. This prayer is one that is prayed knowing that Jesus has rescued you and that he is your only hope. That is to say that your life circumstances will not save you. Your plans for the future will not save you. Your everything else that James has talked about will 
not save you. Rather, Jesus is your only hope. For someone who has been saved by Christ, a prayer coming from them is the prayer of faith. James continues and and talks about the, the rising up, the raising up taking place here. And this is seen throughout the New Testament letters as ultimately talking about being raised from the grave on the last day. Uh, That is, our bodies and our souls being reunited with Jesus forever. But here, it does also cover the fact that this person might get better and get up out of the sick bed. And so, James is using the word raised here to have two different meanings. If the person has committed sins, which look, we all know that we have, James. (laughs) James tells us there is guaranteed forgiveness. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another so that you will be healed. The church and the members of the church should be the people and the place where sin can be confessed and the evil power of sin in our lives can be taken away. A people and a place where the effects of sin are covered over by Jesus and are being united together in him. The end of verse 16 is an exciting verse. Really, what it's telling us is that God answers prayer. (laughs) Hey, wait a second, Wade. It says that the prayers of a righteous man. Well, I'm not sure this applies to me at all. Well, don't worry, me neither. But, But let's see how it might. Sure, this verse seems to be pointing back to the elders. But the elders, are they better than everyone else? No. The only righteous people I know are still sinners. And they're only righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been placed on them. Christian, this includes you and me. Our prayer can have powerful effects. Wait a second, does it matter what kind of prayer? Do I have to pray in a certain way? No. What is prayer? Very simply, it's talking to God. And, and it's, it's through prayer, it, combined to God's word, that God shapes our lives. That he, he changes us, he changes our families, he changes our church and our town. James says Elijah is a good example of this because he was a sinful human just like you and me. And yet he prayed very earnestly, very seriously, that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Let's wrap this up. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now I got to warn you before we get into that verse, those verses, this costs something. In fact, it can hurt. To bring someone back from death and hell in this life and here and now, they could, uh, or to desire to, they could shame you, they could ignore you, they could mock you, they could lie to your face and say they've changed. 
If the world approves of the sin and the lostness of that person that you're seeking to turn back from the gates of hell, well then, you're going to be seen as judgmental. And if the church does not approve of the sin of someone and, and does not accept them because they fell too far, well, they will hate you for forgiving someone like that. And yet throughout this letter, we have had the brother of Jesus and our brother in Christ, James, calling us all back to Jesus. He's calling each of us away from our sin to, for, to confess it and to be forgiven of it. Christian, look. This letter was not just written to, to James's church. It was written to you and me. And with each sin that James has brought up, he is calling us out of ourselves and to Christ. He is doing the work of the Lord for you and for me. And he's also calling us to do that for others. For those that have not yet heard about Jesus, how will they hear if not from you? This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. And so, Anchored Baptist Church, I leave you today where James leaves us. I leave you today with the good news <laughs> that you have been turned back from your sin and from straying away from God like we all naturally do, and you have been turned to the truth. You are a, a sinner that has been uh, led away from their error, and, that, and your soul has been saved from death. Because of Jesus' death on the cross for you, and his defeat, of Satan, sin, death, and hell for you and for your neighbor. So as frightening as it is, remember that God is calling you to come alongside with that good news of Christ for your neighbor and to share that with them, to pull them back from the ledge to pull them back from the gates of hell for the multitude of their sins to be forgiven, just like the multitude of your sins have been forgiven. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. Um, God, we praise along with those who are joyful right now because of the work that you have done for them in their lives. God, we, we mourn and we weep with those who mourn and weep. For those who are struggling and suffering in our church body, God, I lift them up to you right now. And I don't know all the struggles right now. I know that they are diverse and there are many of them. And God, we just ask that for each of us that you would step into our lives this week. And that you would give us bright lights of hope in the midst of darkness and in the midst of separation from one another. And that as we're going through our week and we are um, 
content to just be operating on our own program as we are content to be figuring out our plans for the future. Lord, we would each of us ask that you would remind us of the good news that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us from from that struggle of, of constantly having to be our own saviors. And that we would be reminded that you are with us. That you are for us. And that you are coming alongside of us in our day-to-day lives. That we are not alone in our decision-making. And that you are there to care for us and provide for us. God, we love you. We thank you for this letter from James. And we pray that as we continue to to soak in these words, to dwell in them, um, that you will be continuing to build us up with them too. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.